Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, Washington's Presidency. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, Presidential Election. In 1788 and 1789, the first presidential election was held. Washington received all of the electoral votes possible, and at this time, each elector cast two electoral votes. And John Adams, who received the second most votes, became Washington's vice president. Washington's trip from Mount Vernon, Virginia to New York City was a king-like procession. And some people even called his inauguration a coronation, because so many people were used to having a king. Washington did not have children, and some expressed relief that he didn't have an heir. Washington was very sensitive to these concerns and actually considered stepping down after one year. And throughout his presidency, he had the challenge of keeping an air of authority, but not appearing to be too kinglike. The Constitution had provided a framework for government, but there were many specifics left out. So it was up to Washington and his administration to establish precedents. And these precedents would shape American political activity for generations. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Executive Departments. One of the most important characteristics of leadership is to know what you know, but also to know what you don't know. We aren't all perfect. We all need advice, and that's okay. So Washington wants to assemble an all-star cast of experts around him so he has the best information and can make a well-informed decision. Imagine that. To help the president govern, executive departments are created, and each department is headed by a secretary and secretaries will make up the president's cabinet. The Department of State is led by the Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson. The Department of War, today called the Department of Defense, was led by the Secretary of War, Henry Knox. And the Department of the Treasury was led by Alexander Hamilton. Now, this should all be obvious, but just in case you miss Civics 101, uh, the Department of State deals with foreign affairs, the Department of Defense deals with the national defense, and the Department of Treasury deals with the nation's finances. Just saying. In the 18th century, the first Lord of the Treasury in Great Britain was called the Prime Minister, and so this is actually how Hamilton viewed himself. He often referred to it as my administration, with Washington like being his king. Lastly, the Supreme Court needed to be set up, which was done with the Judiciary Act of 1789, which organized it with the Chief Justice of John Jay and five Associate Justices. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Hamilton vs. Jefferson. From the very beginning, Washington experienced problems in his cabinet between Hamilton and Jefferson. Now let's look at their personalities and their viewpoints to see why. Hamilton is an elitist, even though he came from a very poor background. He wanted the United States economy to be based on manufacturing and commerce, not on agriculture. He also wanted a strong central government, with a standing army and a national bank, to handle government funds, print paper money, and give the wealthy a place to invest their money. Lastly, he wanted the United States to look eastward across the Atlantic and to become a strong, Britain-like state. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Hamilton vs. Jefferson. Jefferson, by contrast, was a fan of the people, even though he had a very elitist background. 
He believed that America should be a society of small farmers, because if they owned their own land, they would be independent, and thus they were more virtuous. He once wrote, quote, Those who labor in the earth are the chosen god of people, if ever he had a chosen people. End quote. Which is interesting since Jefferson was an elite farmer who owned slaves. Jefferson feared a strong central government and instead wanted strong state and local governments. He believed a standing army was a sign of tyranny and thought that the National Bank was unconstitutional. And he wanted the United States to look westward and preferred France and its revolutionary ideas to Great Britain. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Debt. The first big issue facing the federal government was how to pay off the revolutionary debt. During the war, Congress had issued securities, basically IOUs, to patriots who promised that they would pay them back later. By the 1780s, the securities still had not been paid, and many veterans wondered if they would ever get their money. Due to this uncertainty, wealthy speculators went around buying up securities at pennies on the dollar. Many veterans, just wishing to get something, sold them for as low as 15 cents per dollar. The states had also run up a lot of war debt as well, and the North had more debt than the South. Why is this? Well, most of the war was fought in the North. British and Continental armies stripped the countryside of New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania bare, and though battles were fought in the South, there was less damage, and the South had unpaid laborers, slaves, cultivating cash crops, which enabled them to pay off their war debts quicker. So how will all this debt be paid? Hamilton has an idea. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Hamilton's Plan. Before you begin, if you click the top of the PowerPoint, it should take you to a YouTube video from the John Adams HBO miniseries about Hamilton's plan and him sparring with uh, Jefferson. So take a look at that and then come back. I love that scene. Well, Hamilton's plan was to let the federal government assume the debts of Congress and the states. And this would show the world, especially wealthy investors, that the United States was a safe place to invest because it paid its debts. Now, this is the first step. Let the government buy up the securities. But then, who would get the money? The speculators who had bought them for cheap, or the veterans who used to own them? Well, Hamilton said the speculators. Because to do otherwise would be an encounting nightmare, and because Hamilton wanted the money in their hands, in the movers and shakers, rather than the poor. And many people believe that this was unfair. His second step was to let the federal government assume state debts. But the problem is that most southern states had already paid off their debts, as I described before, and so theoretically this is unfair to them. And this is an early example of sectionalism, or agitation between the different regions of North and South, and we will see this as a constant theme moving forward. So as you can see, not everyone was a fan of this plan. James Madison of Virginia and other representatives in the House blocked Hamilton's plan, Eventually, a compromise was agreed upon, called the Compromise of 1790. Congress would pass Hamilton's plan, and in return, the new national capital would be built in the south along the Potomac River, and this new federal city became known as Washington, D.C. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Raising Revenue. How would the federal government raise money to pay its new debts? 
Hamilton proposed two taxes. A tariff on imported goods, supposed to raise money and encourage U.S. manufacturing. But unfortunately, tariffs also raise prices for many Americans who buy imports. And this may also inspire other countries to pass retaliatory tariffs on U.S. goods. Second, he wanted a tax on the manufacture of alcohol. And this upset southern and western farmers who often found it easier to transport their corn to market in alcohol form rather than as grain. Farmers perceived this as Hamilton's favoritism towards the eastern seaboard, and as we will see later, a rebellion will rise in response to such actions. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Managing Revenue. Okay, so now that the government knows how to collect money, how do you manage this money? Well, Hamilton wanted to create a national bank. But Jefferson and Madison said that national government did not have the power to build a bank because the Constitution did not specifically give it that power. Thus, Jefferson and Madison are known as strict constructionists. According to Jefferson, quote, To take a single step beyond the boundaries thus specifically drawn around the powers of Congress is to take possession of a boundless field of power no longer susceptible of any definition. End quote. By contrast, Hamilton is a broad constructionist. Strict constructionists theoretically adhere to the letter of the law, while broad constructionists rely on the concept of implied powers in the Constitution to ensure the common good. Now, you all get to decide what camp you fall into, but just note that political parties and even judges can use partisan beliefs to influence case law. Some judges one moment will say they are all for limited government, but then grant the government power to spy on you and record everything you've ever done and put it on a server online for later use. Likewise, other judges will rail against curtailing civil rights while attacking other rights that they disagree with. History, like life, is about balance. Don't fall for the bull from any side of the political divide. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Debate. The argument over the National Bank became nasty very quickly. Jefferson arranged for the establishment of the National Gazette, a newspaper to articulate opposition to Hamilton's plan. At the same time, Democratic-Republican societies were forming. These are grassroots organizations that submitted petitions and put out broadsides, little pamphlets, uh, which denounced Hamilton's policies. Now, these societies are not created by Jefferson or Madison. They are from the ground up. Now, the bank decision ultimately was left up to Congress and the president. And Congress will pass the bank bill. And Washington, unsure of its constitutionality, asked Hamilton and Jefferson to make their cases. Ultimately, Hamilton won Washington over, and the bank was established in 1791. And if you haven't already, go ahead and listen to a couple of tracks from the Hamilton soundtrack, the musical, on this uh, cabinet battle. It's brilliant. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Political Parties Develop. Over time and for various reasons, Americans tended to take one side or the other, leading to the development of something similar to political parties. But we aren't there yet. Those who supported Hamilton's idea of a strong federal government were called Federalists, while those who supported Jefferson's vision of strong state governments were called Democratic Republicans or Jeffersonian Republicans. 
And just to note that these parties have nothing to do with the Democrats or the Republicans of today. And if anyone ever tries to make a connection between the Republican Party and the previous Republican parties of the 1800s, they're either ignorant or lying to your face. Well, the name of Democratic Republicans implies that the Federalists wanted a monarchy. And we have to ask ourselves, is this the first of the two parties in the two-party system? Well, the two groups did not see themselves that way. In the 18th century, parties were considered bad. Federalists saw themselves as the government, while Republicans said that the Federalists were too aristocratic and viewed them as a threat, and hence the Republicans were merely a temporary opposition to combat this threat. Some historians have also posited that these proto-political parties are more kinship-based or interest-based, perhaps even sectionally based. Regardless, these two groups opposed each other on a number of issues. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Controversy Brews. Meanwhile, controversy arose over the alcohol tax. In 1794, Armed farmers in western Pennsylvania threatened tax collectors who were trying to collect the alcohol tax. So Washington called up a force of 12,900 militiamen from four states to put down the rebels. And Washington accompanied them most of the way, but Hamilton actually led them onto the field. When the force arrived, the Whiskey Rebellion collapsed. And this was the first time in U.S. history that a sitting president accompanied an army on the field. And this only happened one other time during the American Civil War. Now, how does this compare with Shays' Rebellion? Both were among the lower classes, who were disgruntled with the unfavorable economic situation after independence. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Diplomacy and Party. While the new national government faced problems at home, it also faced problems overseas. In 1789, France had a violent revolution where the people overthrew the monarchy and established a republic. In 1793, France went to war with Great Britain, and the U.S. had to decide which side it would support, if any. Well, militarily, Hamilton, Jefferson, and Washington all agreed on neutrality, because they wanted to continue trade with both sides, and they did not want to endanger the new republic, which would have been destroyed if we had gotten into a foreign war. So in 1793, Washington declared U.S. neutrality, which theoretically violated the Franco-American military alliance from the Revolution. To counter this, Hamilton stated that their alliance was signed with the King of France, and now that he was dead, the treaty no longer applied. What about moral support? Most Republicans wanted the United States to support new Republican France, as Jefferson saw France as the country of liberty, and early on, many Americans were pro-French. As a result, Citizen Chenet, a French official, came to America, and he began issuing licenses for privateers to attack British shipping. This was supported by Jeffersonians, until Chenet was told to cease and desist and responded by saying that he didn't have to listen to Washington or the government. As a result, the French recalled Genet, but the damage was done. By contrast, the Federalists supported Great Britain. Hamilton and John Adams preferred order, and lamented what they saw as bloody mob rule of the French Revolution. This was a major issue that will really cause a divide politically. Jefferson once wrote to Monroe, quote, the war between Britain and France kindled 
and brought forward the two parties with an ardor which our own interest merely could never excite. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, who were good friends, would passionately disagree about this, and in part it ruptures their relationship, and they refuse to talk to one another from 1801 to 1815. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, War Looms. Then, a serious problem arose. British and French ships began seizing American merchantmen. Americans believed strongly in the principle of free ships and free goods, which they viewed as an important part of U.S. sovereignty. The British said this principle was moot in wartime, and the Americans were particularly pissed at the British, whose larger navy really disrupted their trade more than the French. The British also claimed the right of impressment, the right to search U.S. ships on the open seas and in foreign ports for suspected deserters from the Royal Navy. Now, there were some British deserters who sought to escape from the British whip and receive better pay on American vessels, but this was very problematic, as it was an era of heavy immigration, and it was very hard to tell who was a deserter and who was a British immigrant to the United States. In essence, this meant the British were kidnapping U.S. sailors. British troops were also stationed in forts in Michigan in upstate New York in violation of the Treaty of Paris. Next, the British refused to leave until Americans had repaid their pre-Revolutionary War debts to British merchants. And it looked like war might happen, and Washington wanted to avoid this at all costs, as war would threaten the fragile young republic. Also, 90% of U.S. imports came from Great Britain, and the federal government made a lot of money taxing those imports. So what would happen in the event of a war was that this source of income and goods would dry up and strangle the nation. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Jay's Treaty. Washington sent John Jay to Great Britain to negotiate a treaty. As you may recall, Jay was the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and author of several Federalist Papers. Jay's treaty was negotiated in 1794, but it did not really solve any problems. The British refused to accept the principle of free ships and free goods in wartime, and the British still claimed the right of impressment. This issue would continue to plague the United States going forward. But the British did agree to vacate their forts, but they'd already agreed to do that after the Revolution. Most importantly, the treaty kept America out of war between France and Great Britain, and the Senate just barely ratified it. Many Americans, especially Jeffersonian Republicans, thought their government had simply sold out to the British, and there were mob demonstrations outside of the presidential mansion. So clearly, foreign policy has a tendency to divide Americans in their domestic politics. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Haitian Revolution. The island of St. Dominique, modern-day Haiti in the Dominican Republic, had a lucrative coffee and sugar plantations. By 1780, the white population of the island numbered 40,000, with 30,000 jeunes de couleur, or free people of color, and 500,000 black slaves, many of whom had been born in Africa. Like our earlier discussion of Caribbean slavery, it was cheaper for planters in St. Dominique to work slaves to death and buy new ones, rather than to provide a modicum of comfort necessary for their survival. In addition, punishments were swift and brutal, usually carried out by free people of color 
or recently arrived whites. These overseers were ruthless, boiling people alive, slashing off body parts, and other disgusting methods of torture. Thus, resentment seethed from the enslaved population, and the multi-ethnic nature of the island made the future conflagration particularly brutal. So when the French Revolution breaks out in 1789, the revolutionary ideas make it to the island, along with veterans from both the American and French Revolution. A war will break out between the whites, free people of color, and blacks, all fighting among each other, waffling between alliances when it suited them. Later, French reinforcements will arrive by the thousands, only to die of tropical diseases. In the chaos, Toussaint Louverture, a free person of color who had great organizational skill, formed a 27,000-man army by 1797. He kept a careful balance of power relationship going between his free people and the masses of the enslaved, as well as white allies. His vision was for a multiracial republic. The three groups of whites, free people of color, informally enslaved Africans in a delicate balance of power. In 1801, he issued a constitution for the Republic of Haiti based on equality and citizenship. However, his reforms were meant to keep plantation agriculture moving, and thus land reform was not yet adopted, which angered many. In 1802, Napoleon sent 40,000 men to crush the Republic, and the French employed brutal fighting that utilized early forms of chemical warfare against the Haitians. In the process, Toussaint was captured, sent to France, where he died in a prison cell from mistreatment. This doomed L'Overture's dream of a multi-ethnic republic. And this was a tragedy, because Napoleon's actions and the death of moderates like Toussaint plunged the revolution into deeper radicalism. As a result, many white French citizens fled or were killed with thousands ending up in America. In the end, the war established the world's first black republic, and many white southerners were deeply worried about their own slaves launching a similar fight for freedom. This event does become an inspiration to black Americans, though there will never be a slave revolt in America that is anywhere near as successful. But the example will influence white and black Americans and their fight over slavery and freedom for the next 60 years please advance to the next slide entitled The Ballad of Ona Judge. Ona, or Oni Judge, was a personal servant to Martha Washington. She was born at Mount Vernon in 1773. She was a skilled seamstress and was Martha Washington's favorite servant. She moved with the first family to New York City and then Philadelphia during the Washington administration. Washington, while in Philadelphia, was told by his attorney general, Edmund Randolph, himself a slave owner, that because Pennsylvania had a gradual abolition law, this would free slaves after six months of residency. Now, how did he know this? Three of his slaves informed him of the fact and got their freedom. Note here, the Attorney General does not try to subvert law. He could have, but he cared more about law in Republican institutions. Oh, I wish we had that today. So, because of this information, the Washingtons have their slaves, including Ona Judge, to move around every six months to avoid legal residency and the application of the 1780 law. Again, Washington theoretically could have probably got around this. He could have said, I'm Washington, let me do it. Or he could have said, I'm the president, let me do it. 
He could have said, hell, I'm a slave owner and everyone believes in white supremacy anyway, so let me do it. But he doesn't. He may have tried to skirt the law. He may have tried to get around it, but he did not subvert it because he cares about law and Republican institutions. Now, in Philadelphia, Judge meets the free black community, and there's lots of anti-slavery feeling, and she begins considering her options. Towards the end of Washington's presidency, Ona learned that she was going to be given to Elizabeth Park Custis, Martha's relative, and she did not want this, so she decides to escape. On May 21st, 1796, while the first family was eating, Ona walked out the door, went to the port, and caught a ship to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Over the next few months, she hid out in New Hampshire. Meanwhile, the Washingtons tried to entice her home, and when that didn't work, they sent slave catchers after her. Again, this is all within the law. Next, Judge got a tip from a local politician about men coming from her, so she fled and hid out in a remote part of the state. Eventually, she married a free man called John Staines, converted to Christianity, and died in February 28, 1848, though still technically the property of the Custis estate. Before her death, she was asked in an interview on May 22, 1845, if she had any regrets. And she responded, quote, No, I am free, and have, I trust, been made a child of God by the means. End quote. Well, why do I tell this story? It illustrates the complexity of George Washington, staying within the law, not abusing his office, but still attempting to hold a human being as property, which is abhorrent. It depicts the complexity of slavery in America, as laws do matter, and people have to navigate around their implications. And it shows human agency, with enslaved and formerly enslaved people charting a course towards freedom in order to shape their own destiny. I suppose the point is that the past is complex, and at times contradictory, and that is why I love it so. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you are all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.